Sarah here, host of The Optimalist. You may have noticed some of the small changes we've started to make around here, and I just wanted to encourage feedback on what you love, don't love, want more of, etc. Listen at the end of this episode for all the ways that you can reach me and review the show. Also, check the show notes for a link to all the info that you need to start exploring Mirror, Swivel's new AI classroom reflection assistant. It's empowering our kids to recognize themselves in that moment and then giving them the tools to say, what can I control in a world where there's a lot that I can't control? Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Optimalist, a podcast where we have set out to explore the optimal way to educate in the age of AI. If you're new here, I'm Sarah Candela, your host through this exploration of the elements of human flourishing. Today, I'll introduce you to Dr. Rebecca Jackson. Dr. Jackson is an industry leader in brain health and optimizing the brain to enhance how you feel and function. She brings 15 years of brain balance experience to her role as chief programs officer. In this role, she leads research on improving cognition, development and well-being, driving programmatic enhancements, and creating new programs to meet the growing demands of people wanting to achieve more, both for themselves and their children. She is the author of the book, Back on Track, and is a frequent media guest as an expert on improving brain health development, and cognition. This conversation is filled with thoughtful insights from a woman who has dedicated her career to helping us understand how to best optimize what our brain can do and how to keep it healthy. I loved Dr. Jackson's enthusiasm for brain science and her excitement for making this knowledge accessible to parents and educators. I really hope you enjoy this episode and I can't wait to hear what you think. I'm driven by understanding health and wellness and well-being. I like concepts that are preventative. What can I do to, to be healthy? And then I was watching as a new parent, I was watching struggle of a parent that had an instinct that, gosh, something's going on with my child and that parent being blown off. Oh, he's fine. He's a boy. He'll outgrow it. You know, oh, just wait and see. I don't want to wait and see if there's something that I can do now. I don't want to wait two years, three years until the problem or challenge is bigger. And I grew up with a mom who was an elementary school psychologist. And so I grew up very familiar with teachers and educators, though I haven't worked professionally in that space. And I watched the challenges and frustrations she was facing of feeling like a lot of the work that she was doing was making modifications to get the student through. And she would tell you, she would feel like the challenges that a student came to her with at a young age, the same challenges still existed years later, and they were just working to get that student through. And boy, if we can minimize the challenge, if we can create change so a child has better attention and focus, has better impulse control and emotional regulation, has better working memory and cognitive skills, that can really change the experience in the classroom. So that energy gets to go into making and keeping friends and learning rather than trying to hold still and pay attention. 
Oh my gosh. I love it. You're saying all of the phrases that I love right now. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. I know in some of the notes that you left me, um, in your, in their little calendar invite there, I almost missed them. And I was like, Oh my gosh, she wrote such great things in here. These are all perfect. But I wanted to ask you about this concept that you said you describe as free range thinking time. And you described it as time when you're not actively engaged in anything and allowing you to process emotions and experiences and brainstorm. This is something that we talk about a lot in the optimalist community. And then um, we we listen to educators respond to this, this idea of having this thinking time, or it could be like time that people think of as creative energy. Like it's where your creative energy can start to blossom or take root. And it's often something that educators find we're still in this very scheduled time. Most people are in their school settings in that, in the physical school environment. And so even though we know that it's healthy and that kids need it and we need it so hard for us to find that space. And so what we, we also associate that in our, in the work that we do with um we call it like time to just be bored right where we don't we think that boredom is bad and that we don't we kind of like fill it up with with stuff and it's where our problem with I uh, now I could go on a tangent it's like where all of our attention problems start to stem from right because we just want to fill up our time with grabbing our phone and starting to scroll because we we we've lost this ability to understand how important it is to have that free range time I don't know if I have really a question here. I just wanted to give well, you some space so to react. Thoughts. Oh, good, <laughs> yeah. good. This is what I do. I just kind of like, sometimes there's questions, but I like to have you just react to things and have just a conversation. So um, so yeah, if you want to just comment on that or react to anything that I'm bringing up here, that'd be awesome. Like so many things, you start with a base of knowledge and then you have an aha moment within your own life and experience. And I had this moment of, all of my best thoughts and ideas come in the shower and thinking <laughs> why the shower? What is that? And, you know, drawing on the, the steam of the shower door, trying to write something out or jot down an idea or hopping out of the shower to jot down a note in my phone. And when I sat back to take a look at my life to say, what is it about the shower that triggers creativity in me? I realized that I wasn't giving myself that free range thinking time. My life, like so many others over the years, has changed. I used to have a lot of time in the car driving to and from work years and years ago. And then we moved closer to where my husband and I um, had centers. And then we shifted to work from home. And then the pandemic hit where we weren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So that drive time went away. I'm also a person that exercises pretty regularly. I go for runs and walks. And I started doing more of listening to podcasts during that time. And when I started to look at the fact that I work way too many hours, I I struggle with work-life balance like so many of us do. And then I'm rushing to kids' sports and activities. And when I I no longer have that drive time in the car, and I realized I was creative in the shower because that was the only, the only chunk of time in my day where I wasn't actively engaged in something else. And then I sat back and started watching my kids. And they go from school to sports, to scrolling on their phone, to doing homework on technology. And you you mentioned boredom. Boredom is where creativity stems from. It's when we're using different networks and pathways in our brain 
that process emotions. And if you think about yourself, picture if you're on a long, boring drive. So you're, you know, you're driving through middle America and it's cornfields left, right, and center. And your thoughts, if you pay attention to your thoughts, they're going to bounce all over. They're going to jump back to the one random memory when you were six years old. You're going to worry about something that you have coming up. This is how we make connections and process information and form memories and we get creative. And sometimes our own thoughts and memories and worries are really, really uncomfortable. And so we can find ourselves purposefully shutting off our thoughts so that I don't have to think about that thing that I did that I'm feeling really awful about. or I don't have to think about the thing that's coming up that's causing me to lose sleep at night. And as both kids and adults, we do things to avoid the uncomfortable. So as adults, sometimes we self-medicate. You know, whether it's wine in the evening or for me, I pick up a book to shut off my thoughts. Um, for our kids, they're grabbing their devices to scroll through that. But as a society, as a whole, we're not allowing ourselves the time and space. And we have so many distractions at our fingertips that make it easy for us to avoid the uncomfortable. And, and even if it's not our uncomfortable thoughts, it's knowing what to do with yourself. So thinking I'm bored. I don't even know what to do right now. There's nothing on TV that I want to watch. I've got, there's, there can be discomfort in that. Um, and for our kids, I think it's so important for them to get comfortable with their own thoughts and with boredom so that it does trigger that ability to get creative and to process our life and our, our experiences. A couple of things are coming to mind now as you're talking here. One is that the um, episode that we just released yesterday, when we're recording this, um, it is Thursday, November 2nd. Yesterday, our episodes come out on Wednesdays. So yesterday, we released an episode with Charlie Peck, and her episode was all about, she works with mental health in schools, and her episode was all about discomfort and getting comfortable with making that feel like something that's safe. And that we don't have to run away from um, and find some way to either fill it as like time or to alleviate it or to just give ourselves things that are less hard because we don't want to do something that we're being asked to do that we didn't choose. Like there's a whole range of activities that fall into that, I think, category of not feeling comfortable with what's happening. And we go through a lot of that in the school setting. And so, uh, it was just, that was one thing I wanted to bring up because I'm going to, now I'm going to connect those episodes when this one comes out. I love how the way you're talking about this, it makes me think of mindfulness, dealing with discomfort, the idea of having space to shut off your own thoughts, all of these things kind of tie together. And I think that people, when they hear words like mental health in schools or or even just like incorporating mindfulness, how do we be more mindful? Some of these things are so big and, and sometimes overused that we don't really understand that a lot of the things that we need and are doing or avoiding all kind of are jumbled into it, right? They're all related. But when we complain about um, or are frustrated about our kids, whether they're our own kids or our students um, being too attached to devices, whether we are struggling ourselves with like, you know, putting on Netflix, the second dinner is over and that's what we do every night. And then we realize weeks go by and our nights are just filled up with endless viewing of stuff. And then it turns into like, what am I doing with my time? Like all of these questions, it all comes down to this idea of, are we being intentional 
about how we treat our brains, about how we treat our bodies, so that you're bringing up that intentional exercise piece as well, or being intentional about time, about the space, the actual physical spaces we're in, the people that we're with, attentive to the people we're with. All of these things come down to the way we, I like to say the way we spend our attention, right? Because it's, it is an expensive thing that we have and we're used to now giving it or it just is here and pe- things take it from us. And I think that a big part of moving into this new era where we're like, I was mentioning to you earlier of, of working and living alongside something like artificial intelligence is that we have to become really reflective about the way we spend our time and attention. Well, and to me, that all stems from self-awareness. So when we talk about mindfulness, our ability to be mindful hinges on our ability to be aware of ourselves and our ability to reflect requires ability to be aware of ourselves. And so when we, you know, one of the things that I try to do in myself and I'm trying to instill in my kids as well is being aware of things like what type of attention am I using when I'm using it? What is my mood like today and what can I do to change and influence that? So for example, if I'm driving my middle schooler to school in the morning and I'm finding myself negative and cranky and irritable and short-tempered to stop and be aware of, oh boy, I'm a little, I'm a little edgy today, maybe too much caffeine this morning. And then taking inventory of, okay, what are the things that put us in a negative state when we're tired? When we don't have the fuel to do what's needed. So, you know, have I had breakfast this morning? Did I get enough sleep last night? Am I stressed about something else at work? Because those are all things that are going to impact my mood. So Mm -hmm. if I can be aware that I'm cranky and irritable, then what can I do to influence that to change my day? If I'm tired, I don't know that I'm going to be able to take a nap in the middle of my workday, but maybe I can take a few minutes to exercise. And I know that burst of exercise is going to help to put my brain in a more positive state. If I'm negative because I'm hungry, I can grab something to eat that's going to give me some protein and carbs to fuel that. If it's because of stress, what can I do? Can I create a to-do list and prioritize my day so I'm feeling less overwhelmed? So to me, self-awareness and mindfulness go hand in hand, and then it's empowering our kids to recognize themselves in that moment and then giving them the tools to say, what can I control in a world where there's a lot that I can't control? Yes. And giving kids choices is also something I know that's really important and close to the hearts of educators um, in a lot of aspects of running the modern classroom. And I'm thinking about, you know, also this, this idea that you're bringing up of knowing when you need a little extra of something and knowing, you know, knowing what your body feels like when it's at its best, knowing what your brain feels like and how it operates when it's at its best. You can tell it takes time to learn those things, right? It's even more than self-awareness. It's just, it's, um, it's experience of being a human with a variety of goals that you see yourself achieving or not like you have to experience those things in order to understand how they feel. So it's hard sometimes when we think about how do we talk about these things with kids when they have, you know, limited opportunity to, to really feel those differences and changes. And I think a lot of what you're saying is the answer, right? We have to just give them that space and that choice to maybe they Maybe they make the wrong decision. Um, you know, maybe they don't choose to to give themselves what they need when they 
when they do. And, and then a couple of weeks go by and they realize, you know, they have, we have to, we can't feel that stuff for them. They, they're the only ones that know, just like I'm the only one that knows how tired I am or know, knows that, you know, I was up way too late working on a project because I'm also an over <laughs> working overtime a lot. And so, um, or I can't stop when I get an idea and I have to continue it and finish it in the evening. And I, I know that that's a lot of adults, um, deal with that, but, but I'm the only one that can really change that. Someone, someone can suggest like, wow, you look tired or you weren't, you weren't as active in that meeting or that conversation as you normally were, but no one can actually make me do anything. So that self-awareness piece is super important. And like, I'll just give you like a personal, for everybody listening, like a personal thing is like, we tend to make these decisions of like, I don't even know if it's a decision, but we think that if we mess up or we make a mistake or, you know, we're someone that exercises a lot and then stops all of a sudden or goes through a slump, we think like, oh, that's over. Like now I'm really bad at this and I can't get that back. Now I'm just getting unhealthy again. And we find it difficult to get into that mental space of like, no, like every day you can start again. You know, that, that brain space of, of, not realizing or not wanting to let ourselves realize that we can actually get through this struggle and do the hard thing again. I don't know. I'm I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm thinking about when you were talking just before, I'm thinking about my recent, like I'm someone who's really heavily into yoga and meditation. And I've gotten a little out of practice during the week in the recent month or so. And I feel it immediately. It's like my limbs stop working. <laughs> If I miss like three days in a row of yoga, I literally have trouble doing everything. And that comes from only like five years of regular practice and knowing how my body works and knowing what it feels to be really like flexible and strong. And then when I miss that, it's almost like my bones are freezing. And so I ever it affects every single aspect of my day, what I look like, like how I make decisions, and I'm very aware of it. And um you know, having to make the steps, like knowing that I didn't, that I suddenly have a very busy schedule and I couldn't do exactly what I was doing three months ago. You have to also make the space in your brain, right? To be okay with that and say like, well, maybe I wasn't as free as I was a few months ago, like in the summer. And now I'm really busy, but the things I'm busy with are awesome and I'm not giving those up. So let's figure out how to mentally and physically rearrange that life and your brain so that you can, uh, it's almost like rewiring, right? So that yes. I can still, I can do the things that I love that are now filling up my time that are excellent. I am aware that my body is suffering, but I have to work towards recreating a path for, for what I need physically to be in that space as well. Sure. So I know I went on a journey with that, but with that no, comment, but, but there's, there's so many lessons in, in what you just shared about yourself. I mean, you develop that sense of self-awareness over years. Our kids yeah. don't have, you know, decades of life experience and we can guide them in that. And one of the things that I always um, like to encourage others to do and do with my own kids is before they're aware of themselves, we can guide them in that awareness. And so I like to always provide a physical, you know, give, give two observations. And so to say, you know, gosh, Sarah, I see today you're not your usual joyful, vivacious self. 
I'm noticing it in your tone of voice and also in your posture. I see you're a little more slouched and I can hear a difference in your tone of voice. So I always want to point out two things that kids can relate to of, okay, something physical of, you know, maybe if they're getting agitated, you know, I see that you're starting to look really frustrated right now and I could hear it in your voice. So that's, even if they haven't pressed pause to realize that this is what I look like and sound like when I'm stressed, when I'm angry, when I'm frustrated. And then, as you mentioned earlier, choice. We all want to have choice. And as kids go through development, they want to feel like they have autonomy over themselves. And that's part of mm-hmm. development is that striving towards independence. But again, providing them with choices that are going to help. So I'm seeing that you're really tired and sluggish right now. Are you feeling that too? So touching base to be like, am I on the right track with with what I'm guiding Yeah, that's on. a great way of putting it. And then what are some things that we can do right now to help? You know, we can't take a nap in the middle of the school day, but do you want to, you know, carry a stack of books down to the principal's office for me? Or do you want to go in the hallway and do 10 squat jumps? Let's use your muscles to turn on your brain to wake you up. For you personally, if you don't have time to do your full yoga routine, could you break it up and do a few minutes in the morning mm-hmm. before you eat breakfast and a few minutes before you go to bed at night? Maybe it's not the ideal solution, but if we can provide kids with some options to say, here's how you can influence your brain in the moment. So if I'm a teacher in a classroom and I see Susie in the classroom having a really hard time focusing today, she's staring out the window. I can tell she's sitting there going through the motions, but not connected and engaged. Is there a moment to step aside and not have this conversation in front of the class, but to say, gosh, I see you're having a really hard time focusing today. I'm noticing you're not writing things down and that you've been looking around. Are you feeling that way too? Have you noticed that in yourself? And if so, let's let's think about a couple of strategies that could help us right now. We know that exercise is going to re-engage attention and focus in the brain. We know a hungry brain can't focus. So, hey, did you bring any snacks today? Do you think it would be helpful if you ate that snack now? So if you're hungry, you could help focus. Or do you want to take a few minutes to yourself to regroup and to move your muscles to turn on your brain? So mm-hmm. it's helping to build that self-awareness through pointing out physical and emotional piece if you can, and then providing options so that over time, we want our kids to start to problem solve for themselves. I'm feeling stressed and irritable right now. I'm having a hard time paying attention. These were some strategies that were taught to me of exercise or eat or reduce stress that can help to influence that moment positively. Yeah, I love that. And I know that a lot of of people listening to this are going to be very, I think, just excited to hear the way you're approaching um, working with kids on self-awareness, because I think it affirms a lot of what we know and what we are doing a little bit of, but it, I think sometimes we can feel lost in like, is it really working? Like we don't always as an educator see, you know, if we're only with a kid for that one year, we don't see the development. And I think it's important to hear conversations from people like yourself who are doing this work and living living in this space every day because you are seeing that you are seeing that the results of of this kind of approach and i think that it helps a lot it's helping me even just hear you um talk about it because it's again one of those things that we know like okay this is the right thing i should be doing it but you know because kids have such a limited experience with even expressing those emotions right or knowing what they are how to feel like it can be difficult to to think, are they really, are they really able to communicate that? 
but yeah, I think that that, that, that reaffirming that for people is really helpful in that respect. Okay. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit as we go kind of towards the end. I wanted to give you space to talk about the book because I like that you introduce it, even just on the back of the book, the idea of it being, I guess, inspired by some things that are happening regarding the pandemic. And you brought up the pandemic earlier. But I also know that you're super conscious that these are not problems that are like just suddenly appearing because of the pandemic. And I think that that's something that a lot of people have been going back and forth, especially in the education space over the last few years is how to deal with the fact that a lot of the issues that we have faced uh, since then existed before. We've had to come to terms with the fact that we were kind of letting a lot of stuff slide and not paying attention to what was really going on in our brains and what we really need. And so it's, um, I think, really important to have these kind of conversations over and over too, and, and remind ourselves that we have the power to to change a lot of these trajectories. So I wanted to give you some space to talk about that work and and the book and how you see us kind of moving forward from that. Sarah, what you just said about the importance of having these conversations about understanding the brain and what we can do to change the brain to change our lives is exactly why I wrote the book. You're so correct that there were so many struggles and challenges that were already in existence when we think about a teacher in a classroom and the percentage of kids that struggle with emotional regulation, with behavior, with attention. We're living really complicated lives and we have more and more kids and adults struggling with things that are disrupting the classroom environment and the learning experience and our social skills and, and social interactions. I feel strongly that a teacher's job has never been easy, but in the past few decades, it's gotten increasingly more difficult. And then the pandemic came along and I feel like the pandemic was just pouring gasoline on the fire, where when we suddenly had sustained stress for long periods of time, if we didn't know what to expect day to day or what was next month or next week or next year going to look like. And we were facing massive amounts of change, change how you're teaching a classroom, change how you're learning in school, change what activities you're doing. And both stress and change are highly, highly draining and fatiguing on the brain. And so we had this prolonged scenario of life is already hard. And then we put a lot of stress and change on top of that. And then we had years where kids had and adults differences in our day-to-day sensory stimulation. When we think about a regular day when, you know, I dropped my kids off at school, I went for a run around the lake, I swung by the coffee shop to grab something to eat and a cup of coffee. You know, later today, I need to run to the grocery store and run some errands. A lot of that changed. So when you think about the extensory experience of that, the smell of the coffee shop, the the visual of the grocery store, and when we hunkered down at home or did what we needed to do, given the information that we have, there's no judgment in, in that statement. For our kids, the biggest drivers of development are sensory exposure and motor activity. That's what builds and develops the brain. We learn through our senses. And for our kids and us that were at home all the time, we had a Groundhog Day sensory experience where Mm -hmm. we were only encountering the sensory experiences in our own home. We were ordering groceries. We weren't going out. We just, we changed that. And so for our developing kids, they have a gap in the traditional exposure and experiences 
that they would have had for development. And very early on, we started to see it in the data. And we know that we have increased rates of ADHD, anxiety, and depression. We know there's an increased academic achievement gap that's disproportionately impacted differences in our populations. And we know that there was an increase in medication usage. And I was just bombarded by these negative headlines of all the problems. And I was sitting back waiting for the hope that what can we do with this information? What are we going to do about it? And it wasn't coming. Mm -hmm. And so that's what prompted me to write this book is I wanted to give parents a better understanding of what was happening right now that was that was the catalyst, that was the amplifier of challenges, because I was getting phone calls personally from friends and family members and neighbors. And um, and then at work, we were seeing it where more and more families were reaching out to Brain Balance saying, you know, can you help with attention? Can you help with these things? And so, you know, I'm not the only expert with ideas and thoughts and opinions, but I wanted to lead a conversation that I felt like wasn't happening and needed to happen. We need to understand why that time impacted our kids, because hopefully we'll never live through another pandemic, but all of us are going to face times in our life of stress and change. What can we do on a daily basis so that we're more resilient to face those times without triggering or resulting in anxiety or depression or struggles with attention and cognition? Um, so it, I wanted to arm parents with a book that give an understanding of here's what development looks like from birth to age 18, not just for toddlers. Mm -hmm. And what does development look like for a 15-year-old with learning, with socialization, with attention and focus so that a parent knows when are things on track and when should I worry? And then what can you do about it? What can you do to support optimal function on a daily basis? And then what can you do big picture to drive change in brain development and connectivity to support a healthier, happier brain? Oh, I love all of it. And I'm now really connected to this. Um, you're talking about sensory experiences because it's so important. I know so many teachers now are really tuned into the way sensory experiences or just the senses in general play into any mindfulness routines that they are starting to incorporate into the school day, especially with younger elementary age kids. Like they're half mindfulness, they're half like partly from meditation practice, right? What does it mean to be rooted on the earth and to like to feel this table under my hands and to really press your feet into the ground. And all of those things are part of what I'm thinking about when you say sensory experiences, but then you're also making me uh, think about this idea of leaving our pandemic bubbles. And the first thing that popped in my mind is stepping into coffee shops, which are huge around here in Los Angeles, but stepping into a great coffee shop, even now. I'm so like everything around you, every smell, every sound, like the barista, you know, turning knobs and switches and make the sound of, of the brewing and people chatting. And uh, I don't know, there's just that it actually filled me with like a little joy hearing you talk about that because it's, it's become this event. It's that 3D world. We were missing the, th all the 3D parts that make being uh, a person alive on the earth <laughs> uh, what it is, we're totally gone. And it, I think that the, the fact that that had such an effect on me of you just talking about it now means that it's still something that feels novel, even yeah. now at the end of 2023. Like, you know, there are still places, even though I'm going to coffee shops a lot, but there are still places that I may be frequented pre-pandemic that I haven't even gone back to yet because our patterns of our day have changed. Yeah. 
And I think you can never underestimate the importance of our sensory experiences. And mm-hmm. you just, you, you know, me describing a coffee shop triggered joy and happiness in you are mm-hmm. the way we learn and our emotions and our ability to pay attention are all hinged on our sensory experiences. So if a child has dysregulation or an adult dysregulation or disruption in the way we process sensory information, it can trigger anxiety where I don't trust my experience of the world. And so I'm more uncomfortable. I'm less grounded. It can impact our attention. So when we're over-processing sensory information and I'm hearing the kid next to me who's breathing through their mouth and wiggling lots rather than being able to focus, we can never underestimate the power and importance of our sensory system and how it contributes to our learning, to feeling grounded and focused um, and just our experience of life in general. And just that just made me wonder, um, I'm, sh- I'm sure I kind of know the answer, but is that also, as far as self-regulation is concerned and attention, I guess, um, as an extension of that, but is that, is, is the lack of real sensory experience what leads to dysregulation because of so much exposure to screen time and all of that? Like if I'm, if I'm a fourth grader and I'm on you know, YouTube for five hours. And you know what I mean? Like, or I'm using media like that on the, on the bus ride to school and I'm arriving to school dysregulated and anxious. Is that part of it? Like we are encapsulated in these worlds that are not giving us all of that stuff. There's so many different factors that we could unpack with what you just said, but you know, a quick, simple piece is when we're engaged with technology, it's different. It's a very limited sensory experience. I am getting, you know, there's visual processing information that I have to, to process, but when I'm engaged with technology, I'm not moving. So if I'm playing a game on technology, rather than playing a game outside, outside, there's the uneven ground, there's the wind, there's the sun, there's physical movement and activity. So it's a completely different sensory experience. It's very, very limited in technology, which is why I think it's always so important to find a balance there. But we also can't underestimate how fatiguing technology is on the brain. And so when I'm processing something, watching something that's moving fast, and there's a lot of activity and a lot of action, as you mentioned, attention being a a resource that costs a lot of money, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with that analogy, we're spending money our attention resources on technology that need to be reserved for the classroom. And so if I'm on a device prior to walking into the classroom for the day, I just spent 20 bucks of attention when I only have a hundred dollars worth of attention for the day to begin with. And so I think it's so important when it comes to finding balance with technology and our kids and ourselves is prioritizing the timing of it is I need you to save those resources for school and homework. And then when you're done with the expensive attention tasks, then you can use some time as downtime. It's not really downtime, but then you can have some screen time so that we're not fatiguing the brain before you need that information. And then it's finding that balance so that as much screen time as you're getting, you're getting that much or more in physical activity and movement, because that's going to provide a richer sensory and physical experience that's going to continue to strengthen and build the brain at every age, not not just for our kids, but even more important for our kids. Yeah. And that's why we, uh, we find it so uh, important to increasingly talk about all this stuff, not just in the sense of um, what we're doing in the space of the school day, but you know, what are the adults in the building doing before they get there? What are the kids doing? Like we all exist, whether we're going to work or we're going to school, we all exist in that space for only a part of our time. It might be a lot of time, 
but we all come from somewhere before and we're going somewhere after. And then we have weekends and, and all of this, all of the pieces, like it's important to think it's one of the reasons I love the fact that your book is, is um, really aimed towards parents, but we're talking about it in terms of school because all we all have home life and school life and we can't just do this in one of those spaces or think about this stuff in one of those spaces and then leave it behind um, or like create routines around morning and bedtime, but then forget about the middle of the day. And that's often how people have an entryway into some mindfulness routines as they do a little bit of something when they wake up or a little bit of something before they go to bed. And then time goes by and, and we might wonder why they don't, we don't feel the results that we're told that we're supposed to feel. And I think a lot of it is that we need to connect all the pieces and parts and spaces of our lives into one collective experience and, and really think about how all of those things impact each other. And just because maybe my 20 minute bus ride to school is my free time, my free time maybe shouldn't be completely filled up with stuff that's going to take that or drain that energy or attention. And it's similar to, to being on a commute and feeling that I go through this where I feel it, where you fill it with podcasts or listening or any time that you're alone it's and we're going now we're going full circle back to how we started talking about the space of the spaces that we have and the or the time that we have and what we do with it and that intentionality and as someone who loves podcasts you know i have maybe 11 that are on my regular docket i know what days they come out but and i'm no longer commuting every single day but i do go through that fatigue where it's like every every walk with my dogs every like doing dishes doing all of those spaces get filled up with so many voices that sometimes it's like all right time to turn yes i have all of these episodes that i haven't listened to yet but who cares time to turn them off because i need myself to come into into center and i know that I, there's other stuff that takes my energy and my attention that i need to i need to give that to but it all begins with giving yourself that mental break in that we call it recharging, recharging space. So those exercises, you stopping and doing something physical or stopping and doing nothing, right? Valuing that nothingness, which really is something. It's really like a whole lot of something that we all need is yeah. to just take a, a giant break from everything. And that's the book is filled with ideas and activities, actionable steps that you can start um, implementing today, whether it's at home or in the classroom. and again, at all ages from, from birth to 18. And so much of what we talk about with the kids applies to ourselves as adults as well. I love it. Before we uh, let you go, let's um, do one more thing where I like to get a give our audience a little sense of maybe a bigger picture of who you are. If we can, you can say yes to all of these or no to, no to them, but never, it's not like they're hard questions or anything. But I like to ask guests if they have anything they are either reading or watching or listening to as part of the larger media consumption experience that you are loving right now or you would recommend to people. And they don't have to have anything to do with your work. They can be purely for fun, but it gives us a sense of just like what kind of things uh, make up a full picture of who you are at this snapshot in time? Sure. This is all still brain related, but um, this is a book that I had read years ago that I recently reread. It's called Brain on Fire. Mm. Um, and it's just, it's a fascinating true story about um, a woman who's going through a mental health crisis and really getting to the root of it and understanding what was triggering it. It is hard and painful and real and raw and hopeful. Um, so the book is called Brain on Fire. And it was fascinating to me 
to, it's that balance between real life and science. Oh, I love it. It really tells a a, a really powerful story and um, a documentary that I'm anxiously awaiting to come out um, is an ADHD documentary called Wired Differently. And the focus of the documentary is really exploring and understanding um, parents need to know and adults need to know that there's choices and options and tools out there beyond just medication. There is absolutely a time and place for medication, but we've had such a focus on medication when there are other ways to change and influence and impact the brain. And so this documentary is really exploring um, through the lens of many, many different professionals and many different stories of hope and of complications, just options. And so I, I know about the documentary because I was invited to be a part of it. Um, through the perspective and lens of brain balance and what we do to optimize development to enhance attention and cognition. And I cannot wait. I know the list of other experts that they interviewed, and I can't wait to watch it um, to hear from a broader, really um, deep perspective what what that documentary is going to be. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't even know about that. Both of those things are amazing. I'm writing them down. I'm like ordering this book today. <laughs> yeah. You can you can search ADHD wired differently. Scott Steindorf um is the the producer. Where is that going to be? Do you know? Um, I I don't know final details on that yet. He has an autism um documentary um that's coming out soon. If you if you Google it you'll you'll see find it. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. We'll put all of that information in the show notes too when I do find it. Sure. Um, and oh, I don't know if I cut you off. Was that it? Was there anything else there? That I was going to say I I do have interests other than the brain. <laughs> uh, these days, <laughs> heard it here huge, first, everybody. <laughs> yeah, um, a, a huge focus in our household is um, hockey. My son is a travel hockey player, cool. and we're local in Raleigh, North Carolina, and so we've got a wonderful NHL local team. It's just a, a really, the Hurricanes, a really fun, um, great team to watch. Okay. Um, so, you know, outside of the brain. It's I a hockey fam over yes. there. <laughs> sure. Cool. Well, very last thing, we want to give everybody a chance to find you wherever it is that you want to be found. So, you know, we talked earlier about you not being on Twitter, but I know that you have other things to share. Um, so where can people either connect with you personally or find your work, websites you want them to visit? And then we'll put all of that in the show notes as well. Sure. For Instagram, you can find me at drrebeccajackson.com or on LinkedIn. Um, to learn more about Brain Balance, just brainbalance.com. And we're a program that works with both kids and adults. And we have locations all across the country. We also work with individuals remote through the computer for live coaching. Um, and just that starts with an assessment to really help to understand where you are to know what potential and change is, is possible. Um, so that's really best places to find me would be um, Instagram or LinkedIn. And awesome. you're welcome to reach out personally that way. I hope you enjoyed Dr. Jackson's expert perspective on how we should all be approaching some of the foundational elements of human development, especially when it comes to nurturing cognition and learning how to interpret and regulate how you feel. This is the third week, episode 33, where I am instituting reflection prompts or questions at the end of each episode. Eventually, these will be asked by the guests themselves, but until we catch up to start, I'm going to do it for them. So for this week's episode, let's reflect on the importance of realizing when you are dysregulated and how young people have difficulty doing it themselves. Are there ways that you notice when kids are dysregulated in your classroom or in your own home? 
What are the signs? And how do you get them to practice self-awareness so they are consistently getting better? What I'd ask you to do is reflect privately, of course. But if you follow me or Swivel on Twitter or Instagram, you can participate in the discussion there by replying to reflection posts for this episode. Or you can comment on Substack if that's where you're listening. Additionally, we need you all to make a lot of noise. I know I've been saying this for a couple of weeks, but I'm going to keep asking. Let's make some more noise for this podcast. Please consider letting us know what you think by leaving a review or even a rating in Apple Podcasts. And you can reach me on Twitter at scandela9. The hashtag optimalist can always be used when posting answers to questions that we ask here, especially if you can't find the original post. And I'll be sure to see it that way. I can also be reached at sarah at swivel.com. And just for reference, swivel is spelled S-W-I-V-L. You can listen and subscribe to the Optimalist podcast wherever you love listening to great podcasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday and links to all of the resources are available in the show notes. The Optimalist podcast is brought to you by Swivel. At Swivel, we understand that the biggest challenge in education is the rate of change. Policy revisions, technological advancements, now, of course, accelerated by AI, evolving job markets and ongoing research, constantly identifying new best practices are only some of the factors affecting the rate of change in education. To learn how Swivel can help you be more reflective, engaged, and adaptable, visit swivel.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to The Optimalist, and I'll be back next week with a whole new conversation 